I said, I'm preaching on the Psalms. What did you say? She said, are you stuck on the Psalms? And, uh, of course, you know, there are three plus years of sermons in the Psalms. I mean, there's 150 of them, so we could be in there three plus years easy. But I think the mistake that much of the church makes with the Psalms is we think they're merely devotional. And they are devotional. And we read them and, you know, that's good. But you know what the Psalms are? They're just one long look at Christ. That's what the Psalms are. And you can't go wrong. I mean, I could preach the Psalms until the Lord takes me home and it would be right. Because it's just looking at God. Right? It's just looking at God. And I think if there's anything the modern church needs, and that is to look away from ourselves, as much preaching tends to focus on the man, biblical preaching focuses on God. And so you can't go wrong being in the Psalms. So, having said all that, I'm in the Psalms. And for those of you who came in late, we're going to be in Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Amen? So how many of you know what an oxymoron is? Does everybody know what an oxymoron is? This is a very unusual English word. Is there an Italian word for that? Yes, oxymoron. Okay. Okay. I don't know what the, the origin of the word is, but uh, it, just, it means a combination of contradictory words. For instance, like jumbo shrimp would be, would be a, uh, an oxymoron. Some people say a deafening silence. That would be an oxymoron. It's where the, the words in the phrase by definition contradict one another. So, I was thinking as I studied Psalm 103, the, the ultimate contradiction in the English language. It's lukewarm Christian. The ultimate oxymoron. Lukewarm Christian. It is, the words are incompatible. And if you know your Bible, you understand those words are incompatible. If you know the words of Jesus in Revelation 3, verse 16, you know those words are incompatible. What does Jesus say? He says, anyone who is lukewarm and professes to be mine, what does Jesus say about that person? What will Jesus do with that person? He says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. The literal is, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus Christ is not interested in lukewarm followers. He's just not interested. He won't tolerate it. It is, in my view, the consummate, the quintessential oxymoron to use the phrase lukewarm Christian. About three years ago, the young adults studied American preacher Francis, Francis Chan's book entitled Crazy Love. How many of you were here when we did that? I know Chi, Chi was here. You were here? Yeah, you, you were here. Okay. Um, some of you know who Francis Chan is. He's a well-known American preacher. Um, chapter 4 of the book was probably the most challenging. We spent three weeks in chapter 4. It was entitled Profiles of the Lukewarm. And early in that chapter, Francis Chan asked this question. Has your relationship with Jesus Christ actually changed the way you live? Now, this is an important question for all of us, right? We profess to be Christians. Has our life changed in any way? Or do we still look like the world? Do we still make decisions like the world? Do we still chase after the things the world chases after? Are we, in effect, just like the world with the inconvenience of showing up uh, for church on Sunday? I think it's an important question for all of us to consider. Has your relationship with Jesus Christ actually change the way you live. And then in that chapter, he goes through a list of, of attributes of the lukewarm person, the lukewarm, so-called lukewarm Christian. Let me just give you a couple of, from the list. He says the lukewarm Christian, they attend church regularly, but only because they think they ought to, right? They tend to choose what's popular over what is right. They don't really want to be saved from their sin as much as they want to be saved from the penalty of sin. Lukewarm Christians are moved by stories about people who radically obey Jesus, but they never consider it. The lukewarm Christian rarely 
uh, shares their faith. They gauge their goodness by comparing themselves with the world. They say they love Jesus, but they never surrender to Him as Lord of their lives. They love others, but do not seek to love others as much as they love themselves. They put limits on how much time, money, and energy they are willing to give to Jesus Christ. The lukewarm Christian rarely, if ever, thinks about eternity. The lukewarm Christian love their luxuries and their comforts and their toys, and they, regular, they rarely consider giving as much to the work of the Gospel as possible. The lukewarm Christian always plays it safe. They are slaves to the God of control. The lukewarm Christian does not live by faith. They structure their life in such a way that they never have to. You see why we spent three weeks on this chapter? <laughs> it was very convicting, I think, for all of us that went through the study. And then maybe the best line in the book, Francis Chan says, there's something wrong. You call yourself a Christian. He's talking to professing Christians. He says, there's something wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. So, if I'm an unbeliever, and I look at the last three years of your life. Can I tell you love Christ? Do I know by your words and your deeds and your actions that you, you love Christ? Or would I see or get the sense of someone who talks about being a Christian but never incarnates the reality of being one? There's something wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers, I, I would rephrase it. I would say everything's wrong. Everything is wrong if our lives make sense to unbelievers. How can our lives make sense to them? We know the living God. Amen? We know the living God. We're in relationship with the living God. We know the Word of the living God. Of course we're odd to the world. What does the writer of Hebrews say? We are strangers. We are exiles. We are alien. Let me ask you, are you alien at the university? Are you alien at work? Do they know you're an exile in the neighborhood? Can they tell by looking at how you live and how you speak the things you do, the things you won't do? Is it clear to everyone in your orbit that you belong to Jesus Christ? Or are you just playing religion? You read, Psalm, you read the Psalms, these men were not lukewarm. <laughs> these men were not playing a game with God. How can knowing God not change every last thing in our lives? And again, Jesus hates it. We've already touched on it. Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. Calling yourself a Christian and being lukewarm is without a doubt the, the ultimate definition of an oxymoron, but it's worse. What I want to say to you, it's worse than simply being an oxymoron. It's blasphemy. It's a passive-aggressive form of blasphemy. Being a lukewarm Christian is blasphemous. To profess to know, love, worship, and follow the Creator, Redeemer, God, Jesus Christ, and then live that faith in a half-hearted, indifferent, apathetic way is a, blasph a blasphemous commentary on who He is. You understand, if you are a lukewarm Christian, you are giving the world a false impression of who Jesus Christ is. The world is thinking that He's uninteresting and small and unnecessary if you call yourself a Christian and you are lukewarm about Him, He looks negotiable. He doesn't look urgently necessary. You know, that's the aroma that should be coming off our life, beloved. We are, are we Christians in here tonight? The aroma coming off our life should be Jesus Christ is my God. He is my life. None of us do this perfectly. But this is the call to profess to know, love, and worship and follow Christ. The God of Genesis 1-1, the God 
who breathes out galaxies, the God of Genesis 6 and 7, whose holy righteous judgment falls upon mankind, the God of Exodus 19, the thunderous, fiery, smoking, quaking Mount Sinai as God came down, the God of Daniel 7, myriads of heavenly beings worshiping, the the thrice holy God of Isaiah 6, of whom it is said the whole earth is full of His glory, to say that we are in relationship with this God and then live in some kind of lethargic, apathetic, listless way, it's blasphemy to this God. The whole world is saying, He must just be a joke. You live just like we do. You talk just like we do. You dream and plan and and handle your money just like we do. You're one of us. Lukewarm Christianity, it's one of Satan's best weapons. As I said, he makes the God of the Bible look small, uninteresting, common, ordinary, irrelevant, unimportant, and inconsequential. Satan loves it when he can get somebody to call themselves a Christian and then live like the world. You've just done his job for him. Satan loves lukewarm Christianity. (laughs) He loves it. It makes Jesus look unimportant and inconsequential. So, last week, we caught a glimpse of what a real relationship with the biblical God looks like. We saw David in Psalm 63. We saw that raging and inextinguishable thirst that's welling up in him and every other human being on the planet, right? You know you're thirsty. You, you know it. Your soul is thirsty. Psalm 63 is a beautiful picture of that. David wrote, My soul thirsts for God. My my flesh yearns for God. Because Your loving kindness is better than life, O Lord. My lips will praise You. So I bless God as long as I live. We talked about that word over in Psalm 63.4. The word bless. What does it mean for a man to bless God? We're always talking about God blessing us, and He does. But it's a whole different meaning uh, in the text when you see a man blessing God. What does it mean? We talked about it. It means to honor, to praise, to adore, to extol, to worship and exalt God in our lives. That's what it means, beloved. That's what it means for a man or woman to bless God. God is evident in your life. There was one other word. Some of you may remember. It was the word that, that really touched my heart. Another facet of the Hebrew word translated blessed. Anybody remember that last one we talked about? Pardon me? Elaine remembers. It means to kneel. To bless God means to kneel before God. To put your whole life, not just the little piece on Sunday, but to put all of your life in submission to God. All of it. You don't get to hold any of it to yourself. If you think you can hold any of it to yourself, you've not understood the Bible. You've not understood what it means to be a Christian. You've not understood what it means to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You've not understood, beloved, if you're trying to hold back some portion of your life from the Lord. So in Psalm 103 tonight, we see the polar opposite of being lukewarm. It's why my mind went to this oxymoron of lukewarm Christianity. It's the white-hot love, worship, and devotion exhibited in the born-again life that makes Jesus Christ... Let me ask you, does your life make Jesus Christ look beautiful, desirable, compelling, urgently necessary, and utterly indispensable? Does your life make Jesus Christ look like that? It's what He's called us to, beloved. (laughs) Hey, none of us do it perfectly. I've got a long way to go. I'm not holding myself up as the example. What I'm saying to you is what the Word of God is saying to us. We, We are all works in progress, right? We've all got a ways to go here. My question to you is, are you earnest about this? Does it matter when you wake up on Monday? How are you going to live Monday? Are you going to make Jesus look beautiful or not? 
Is it all about you or is it all about Jesus? Listen, you've only got a few moments on this planet. And I'll, I'll, I'll back off because we're going to get to that text in just a few minutes. In Psalm 63, David wrote, anybody remember? He says, my soul, what? Clings to you. This is not a lukewarm man. Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 103. Verses 1 and 2, Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We just sang it. And what is he saying? All that is within me, not just my soul, what? Every corpuscle of my being, right? Every, down to the, what's the smallest element in the body? Dr. Andrea. Yeah, the smallest, just a cell, right? Okay. Dr. Andrea says, down to your last cell. You know, you got about a trillion of them or so. Check me on that one. Um, down to your last cell. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, beloved. Is that how your Christianity works? Is that how it works? Listen, I preach kind of hard because I, I love the people that walk in this door. It's a privilege to preach the gospel. And I don't want you to walk out of here deceived. And those of you who are Christians, I want to exhort you to go deeper because it's just fun. It's just living. Karen asked me today, well, what's your definition of life? I said, God. She said, well, that's a, that's a trite answer. That's an easy answer. It is the answer. God is the answer to life. There is no life apart from God. There's existence, but there is no life. Life is God, and the more of Him you get, the more life you will Enjoy. So David's preaching to himself. I didn't get finished, did I? Verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. He says, I will do this with all that is within me. As I said to you earlier, what I love about the Psalms is that they are radically God-centered. The word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is mentioned 11 times in this psalm. That just means Yahweh. It means the, the God of the Hebrews. It means I, I am that I am. I am, who that I, I am who I am. That's what Yahweh means. It's radically God-centered. He is the God who just is. The unbegun, the uncreated. He is the incomparable, incomprehensible, infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, awesome, fearsome God of Scripture. Don't tell me you know Him and then live like the world. It's impossible. What I want to say to you is for you to know Jesus Christ and then go out that door and live like everybody else and think like everybody else and dream like everybody else and want the same things everybody else wants. It's just simply impossible. That's the point of the sermon. It's impossible. It's an oxymoron. Lukewarm Christianity. If the God of the Bible is who He says He is, and, oh, by the way, He is, then David is right to honor and praise and adore and extol and worship and kneel before Him with every aspect of his life. David is right. If the God of the Bible is who He says He is, and He is, how could anyone claim to be a Christian and, be feel, and, and feel lukewarm about him? Again, it is impossible. David is all in with God. I just want to ask you, are you? Are you all in with God? No matter what. No matter what he calls you to do. No matter who he calls you to witness to. No matter what it looks like, are you all in with God? David says, I'm all in. With every fiber of my being, down to the, the trillionth cell, I'm all in with God. And I love verse 2 here, forget none of His benefits. What are the benefits of God? What are the benefits of knowing God? Everything, right? Well, you can't fit everything into one psalm. So David... Uh, focuses on love, compassion, and the goodness of God. Verses 3 through 5. 
This God who pardons all your iniquities. Obviously, He's talking to believers here. He pardons all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things. So that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Bible teaches us. I'm just going to give you some verses very quick here. That no man is righteous toward God. Romans 3. No man understands the things of God. Romans 3. No man seeks for God. Romans 3. No man does good. There's not one man who does good apart from Jesus Christ. Romans 3. No man has a proper fear of God. Romans 3. The Bible teaches us that every man has a heart that is desperately sick and deceitful. Jeremiah 17. Every man has a heart from which proceed all manner of evil. Mark chapter 7. Every man has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Romans chapter 1. Every man hates God. Romans chapter 1. Every man is ungodly and is the enemy of God. Romans chapter 4. But then the Bible says the most amazing thing in Romans chapter 5. While we were yet sinners. What happened? Anybody remember? Christ died for us. Why would He die for us? We're a reprobate race. We have rebelled against our Creator. That's what sin is. It's rebellion. Sin is saying, I don't care about you, God. I don't care what you say, God. I'm going to live the way I want to, God. I'm a little G-God. I'll be my own sovereign, right? That's what sin is. But while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He pardoned all of our iniquities, verse 3. He healed all of our diseases, and He's talking ultimately about the spiritual disease. Verse 3, He redeems us from the pit of hell. Verse 4, you should go to hell. I should go to hell. If you're a Christian tonight, you won't go there. You won't go there. Why? Because unbelievably, while we were the enemies of God, He set His heart upon us to love us and redeem us. How can you be lukewarm? I'm losing my voice. I've had a cold this week, but how, I'm serious. How can you be lukewarm about this? If you're lukewarm about it, you've not believed it. You've really not believed it. You can't be lukewarm about this. If you really believe that it's true, verse 4 of Psalm 103, He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. You're the enemy of God. You're a rebel before God. And He sets His heart on you to save you, to redeem you for the glory of His Son? Beloved, we can't be lukewarm. It's impossible. It is impossible. It's, it's not possible. What am I saying? I'm saying there's no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. It just doesn't exist. Really. Ultimately, it does not exist. If you are lukewarm, you are not a Christian. You have not fallen in love. You can't fall in love with Jesus Christ and ever be lukewarm again about Him, ever. I'm not calling you to... I'm not saying you'll be sinless. That's not what I'm saying. None of us are sinless. We're always fighting that sin nature. We're always working on our sanctification. But there is a love affair going on. Amen? Amen. It's real. It's changed everything in my life can't be lukewarm about it. I can't do it. We talked last week about this verse 5 here, about, about satisfaction. We must have God. God is the only one who can satisfy the thirsty soul of man. I was reading Charles Spurgeon, famous 18th century preacher on this, on this verse, and he said a beautiful thing. He said, many, many an unbeliever is satiated. You know what the word satiated means? It means... Many of unbelievers are saturated with the pleasures of the world, okay? Many an unbeliever are satiated, but not one of them is satisfied. 
Some of you know what I'm talking about. If you were converted as an adult, which I was, I was converted at age 28, I get that. Man, all I could do before, when I was, uh, uh, you know, before 28 was to send as much as I could to try to get as much pleasure as I could and satisfy the raging and inextinguishable thirst in my soul. I remember what it was like to be an adult and be unconverted. It was awful. It was terrible. If I didn't have the God dimension in my life, if I did not have Jesus Christ in my life, I would have flamed out a long time ago. I'll just be honest with you. I would have flamed out a long time ago. Verses 6-9, through nine, The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. The Lord performs, verse 6, righteous deeds and judgments. I've told you this many times. You know this if you know your Bible. All moral accounts in the universe will be settled either in the cross or in hell. No sin goes unpunished. Uh, God will render perfect justice in every circumstance. Love what D.A. Carson, American theologian, says. Not only will justice be done. Can anybody finish that for me? I've said it so many times. Not only will justice be done on the last day, not only will justice be done, justice will be seen to be done. God will mete out perfect justice. It's what He's talking about here in the text. And I just want to touch on this. We touched on this earlier in the year. The Christian doesn't have to be bothered with retribution. We don't take revenge. Ever. I don't care what the offense is. Why does the Christian not take retribution? What does God say in Romans? I think it's chapter 12. Let me check my notes. Yes, I'm right. It's Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Why do we not take revenge? Why do we not take retribution? Paul says, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The Lord will work perfect justice in every circumstance. He did that, verse 7, uh, in His revelation to Moses and in His providential dealings with the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. Don't you love that God is slow to anger? Amen? God is slow to anger. He is long-suffering. What does it mean that God is long-suffering? Well, it means that the moment you sin and rebel against Him, He doesn't, yeah, take you out. He is long-suffering. It's all over the pages of the Bible. The long-suffering nature of God against rebellious sinners. Thankless and rebellious sinners. He is a long-suffering God. Verse 8, a God of abounding love. God has loved us with an expensive, sacrificial, invincible, eternal, infinite love. Oh, by the way, you know the story. He was crucified for you. He was crucified. How can you be lukewarm about that? If you really believe He's loved you that way, how could you ever be indifferent about Him? It's impossible. It's the consummate oxymoron. A lukewarm Christian. It just simply doesn't add up. Verse 9, David is talking about the people of God here and how God is like a loving Father. Yes, He disciplines His children, but it's with perfect effect, right? He disciplines His children in love for our own good, as Hebrews chapter 12 says. Verse 10 through 13, I read it to you earlier. I will not read it again. This is the heart of the chapter. So how is it, verse 10, that a perfectly righteous judge does not mete out perfect righteousness? 
upon the guilty party. How is it that He doesn't do that? How can God deal, not deal with sinners according to our sin? How is that possible? Well, you know the biblical answer. Jesus took it. Jesus took my sin. And if you're a Christian tonight, He took your sin. And I just feel like I have to read part of Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being it fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities because he poured himself out to death. He himself bore the sin of many. How can you read that, believe that, and ever be lukewarm about it? You can't. Now, I know you can read it. You can intellectually grasp it. But to own it in your heart in a saving way, you can't be lukewarm anymore. You, you, it's just impossible. It is impossible. Isaiah 53 is a beautiful commentary on verse 10 and verse 11. We are not rewarded according to our iniquities. My iniquity is on Him. And verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love toward those who fear Him. Here's the first picture of infinity in this chapter. So how high are the heavens above the earth? I'm not just talking about the atmosphere. How high are the heavens above the earth? How far can the Hubble telescope see? How far can it see? Anybody know? The Hubble telescope can see 13 billion light years into space. Anybody know what a light year is? Six trillion miles or ten trillion kilometers. You know what the heavens are? It's a reminder to every Christian. As high as the heavens are above the earth. Let me get it right. So great is my God's love toward me. Astronomy's good. That's a good thing. Astronomy's a good thing. But it's bigger for us. It's bigger for us. God loves me 13 billion times 6 trillion. It's just a picture of infinity, beloved. I think that's a big part of what the cosmos is all about. About It's not a commentary on your insignificance. It's a commentary on God's greatness. And it's a commentary on His great love for us. So, what does it mean the benefits of God? They flow to those who fear Him. We see that uh, repeatedly in the psalm. What does it mean? Simply, those who have come to Christ in a New Testament context. That's what it means. Those who have believed those who have recognized that they are sinful, that they need a Savior, they have come to Christ by faith, they have received Him uh, into their life, He is now Lord of their life. He's not some religious icon that I tip my hat to on Sunday. He's Lord Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Right? Every day I wake up, He's God. That's what He means. Those who fear Him. Those who have seen their sin and understand the righteous judgment of God should fall on them. But we have run to Jesus. So Psalm 103.12 is true because verse 10 and 11 are true. How far is the east from the west? It's a second picture of infinity. Right? North and south meet at the poles. But east and west never meet. They never meet. 
it's just another picture of infinity. How big is your forgiveness? It's infinite in God. And I want to challenge some of you who have really terrible sin in your, in your life, in your past. What does God say about it? You in Christ tonight, what does God say about that sin? What does He say about it? As far as what? The east is from the west. It's gone, beloved. It's gone. It's gone. Satan can't accuse you anymore. And if you're still struggling with some horrible sin in your past, put it down. Accept the forgiveness you have in Christ. Put it down. It's one of my favorite things to tell people when they confess horrible things to me. Put it down. Jesus has taken care of it. So I'm back to my original question. How can you believe you've been loved and saved like this and be lukewarm about it? How can you be lukewarm? How can you be lukewarm? We can't, beloved. We can't. We can't. Verse 13, the third and fourth mention of God's compassion. So I looked up the Hebrew word. Listen to this. It means that every believer is loved deeply with tender affection. You are loved deeply with tender affection. This is how God loves His people. Lukewarm doesn't work in that kind of relationship. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It never works. God has loved His people deeply with tender affections. Verse 14 to 16. For God knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. We talked about this Wednesday night at Young Adult Bible Study. The Bible is replete with metaphors about how brief your life is going to be on this earth. Right here we're seeing grass and flowers which last for but a season. What are some of the other metaphors? Anybody remember that the Bible talks about? The transitory nature of human life? You are vapor. You are fog. You are breeze. You are phantom. You are... There's another one. A shadow. You are a breath. You're out of here, beloved. You know, that's why I preach like, life, like, like today matters. You're out of here. I'm out of here. It's a sprint to the, to the hole in the ground. Why does God go to great pains to help you understand just how transitory you are upon this planet? That you might live it for the glory of His Son. Amen. Beloved, it's the only reason you're still walking around. It'd be far better to be with Jesus in heaven. Amen? Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, writing in the first chapter of Philippians, to live as Christ, to die, is gain. Verses 17 and 18, but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to, children, to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and who remember His precepts to do them. The psalmist David has just reminded us that we are like grass, but the love of God is what? Someone tell me. The love of God from the text. The love of God is what? What is it? What does the text say? It's verse 17. From everlasting to everlasting. That's as strong as the Hebrew can get. It has no beginning and it has no end. That's how big the love of God is. It has no beginning and it has no end. That's how big it is. That's what it means to be an infinite being whose emotions are infinite. That's how He loves us, beloved. Have you noticed, and I just want to mention this, if you're biblically literate, you understand, God's unconditional love requires a response from you. You must respond. You know, I meet so many people and I share the Gospel with them and they think, well, I'm just under this 
this gospel umbrella, this ubiquitous universal gospel umbrella, and I'm okay. It's okay. I don't have to take any personal action. Wrong. You have to respond to the free gift, right? You have to receive the free gift. Verses 11, 13, and 17 mention those God's loving kindness and compassion are for those who fear Him. That's simply saying those who come to Him because they see their sin and their need and they come to Him. They see their rebellion before a holy God and they come. That proper fear of God that drives us to Him. And what does it look like in the Bible? It looks like verse 18. Those who keep His covenant and those who remember His precepts to do them. That's what true conversion always looks like. It's always looked like that in the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. I've told you many, many times there's no virtue in simply believing in Christ. Well, what Christ have you believed in? The biblical one or all the counterfeits in the world? The devil believes, right? The devil believes and every last demon believes. There's no virtue in mental assent. The virtue is grace received by faith. Then there is virtue. Then hearts are changed and lives are changed. We are Protestants. We're not saved by sacraments and good works. We are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. For the glory of God alone. That's what he's talking about in verse 18. Verse 19. We're just about to finish. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. David is echoing what both Old and New Testament tell us that God is God indeed. He's sovereign over everything. He has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over just about everything. No, what does it say? His sovereignty rules over what? All things. All things. Our God reigns over all things. Listen, if you ever find yourself in a church that's preaching a God who's pathetic and He can't get His will done, you're not in the church of Jesus Christ and you need to exit the building. What does the prophet... Isaiah say about our God, He will accomplish all His good pleasure. No one can stop Him. He is the great sovereign God. From angels to demons, from stars to molecules, and from microbes to man, our God is sovereign. So David has exhorted himself to bless the Lord, to honor and praise, adore, worship, kneel, before God with all of his life. Now David invites every, uh, everyone to join him. He invites all of creation to join him in blessing the Lord. Let me read the last several verses here. Verse 20. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts. Meaning, there's some disagreement here, but in my view it means unfallen angels, redeemed men, and all other creatures. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, you who serve Him, doing His will. Bless the Lord, all you works of His, even inanimate uh, creation. Bless the Lord. It's all through the Psalms, right? The trees are singing. They're clapping their hands. The seas are roaring. The meadows are singing, right? Creation is singing to its Creator. Bless the Lord, all you works of His hands in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. David calls. I couldn't help but think of Psalm 156. The psalmist says, Let everything that has breath, what? Let everything that has breath praise God. Let everything that has breath praise God. So I hope I made my case. Lukewarm Christianity 
It's the consummate oxymoron. It, in fact, is impossible. These are contra contradictory terms. It doesn't work. It's impossible to know Jesus Christ and live like the world. It's impossible to have tasted His pardon, His healing, His redemption, His loving kindness, His compassion, His forgiveness, and in turn be lukewarm about Him. We understand that unbelievers and nominal Christians are lukewarm toward God. But what I put before you tonight is Francis Chan's question. Or his statement, rather. There's something wrong if you claim to belong to Christ and your life makes sense to the world. There's something wrong, beloved. David has it right, doesn't he? If we've really believed God, if we really know God, if God has been long-suffering with us, if we've really tasted His loving kindness, if we've found pardon and healing and redemption by grace through faith, if our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west, we must honor, praise, adore, worship, kneel before this awesome God. It's what Christianity looks like. And let me just close with this. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He removed our transgressions from us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Beloved, if you're here tonight and uh, you're not where you need to be with Jesus Christ, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to pray. I'm just going to challenge you to do business with God tonight. Um, every one of us have some aspect of our life that we need to give God sovereign control over. And I'm just going to challenge you as I pray. Uh, you be talking to God about that. Life's too short to play games. It's just too short, beloved. It's too short. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Let's pray together. What a beautiful God. What an amazing gospel. I was your enemy. And now I am a co-heir with your son. While I was rebelling and sinning, and ignoring and being indifferent to you. You set your heart upon me. You came for me and you saved me. Lord God, help me to feel the power of that every single day when I wake up. Help me not to be lukewarm about it. There are probably others here who need to rededicate themselves to that radical call of discipleship. Christianity is not something we simply add to our lives. Christianity becomes our life.
we are in relationship with the living God, the Creator God, the Redeemer God. So we all cry out for Your help, Lord. All of us have miles to go. But Lord, I pray that each one here will drive a stake in the ground. Let tonight be a meaningful night. May we truly begin to love You with all our heart, all our our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And we give all praise and glory and honor to the name that is above all other names, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We ascribe all glory to the name of Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and I'll just close us with a benediction this evening. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. God bless you. Have a good week with God. Go look at God in the Psalms and be amazed. Be in love. Remember who He is and what He's done. Don't forget that. Okay, I'm going to ask you next week. Did you remember it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Did you remember how much He's loved you according to Psalm 103? And did you live like it was true? I'm going to ask you, there's going to be a quiz next week. Okay? So it'll be a good excuse for all of you not to come back. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you this question. I love you. God bless. Have a good week.